It will arise as once before, in ages past when magic soared. Passing o'er the world, shore to shore, the wind, the fury, again shall roar. Welcome to the Swan Song Podcast by Eamon Cottrell and Brian Stallings. The Swan Song Podcast is the episodic audiobook for the fantasy novel John Swan Song and the Parada Isle. Episode 9 The Jasmine was a one-of-a-kind ship, both in design as well as its accoutrements. Abram's quarters underneath the poop deck at the back of the ship were crafted in such a way that from the main deck it appeared to be a small cramped alcove with nothing to boast about other than the privacy it provided. The door was misshapen and small. The top edge was cut downward in a curve so that a half-moon chunk was missing. The wall behind it dipped down in a similar fashion so that it still closed but was strange to behold, especially since it was so small. It seemed out of place on such a large vessel. Every time Abram opened the door, it was a wonder that he managed to fit inside. The other cabin, typically reserved for Grant, but which now housed some of the ship's guests, was constructed almost identically on the opposite end of the jasmine. It was slightly smaller than Abram's cabin because the back of the large wooden eagle figurehead at the prow encroached on the back wall of the cabin. From the inside of both cabins, it was quite spacious. From the cramped doorway, there were four steps that led down to the true floor. It was this that added the depth that made the room bigger than it looked from outside, but it still seemed like it grew a little once you stepped through the threshold. There were other such odd works of craftsmanship through the ship. Below deck, where the long oars were manned and where the boys on Labrie imagined the dozens of smoke cannons must live, there were inset lines of metal that ran overhead and extended to the sides of the ship. They made an intricate metallic spider web that served no apparent purpose. As additional framework, the metalwork seemed an interesting concept, but these tubes were thin and almost delicate looking too fragile to provide any real insurance against the harsh seas. If there were ever a wave big enough to threaten the jasmine, all the metalwork in the world wouldn't be able to save them. Hammocks for the rest of the crew were slung here and there between the metal rods. The hull of the jasmine was deeper than a comparable ship by a couple of feet, so the hammocks mostly hung well out of the way overhead, to the sides and in the corners. The three masts that towered over the deck were magnificent, crafted from the same beautiful and incredibly strong heartwood as the fishhook. The jasmine's masts reached toward the heavens, and their crimson-stained shafts bled into the darker skies behind them, becoming swaying shadows. The main mast in the center was easily fifty feet tall, and its two companions were not much less. The boys had always marveled at them when it came to harbor in Labrie. The only other ships they'd seen were the occasional privateer vessels that might come in late one evening and leave out early the next day. And those were at most half the size of the jasmine. John jerked upright, his pupils constricting in the light of the cabin. 
His eyes were so sore it hurt to keep them open. As he hurriedly scanned the cabin, he realized that they weren't the only part of him that hurt. He gingerly moved his legs over the side of the small cot he had been lying on, and with every small motion his entire body throbbed. Rubbing his legs, he tried to piece together the memories of the prior day. He wasn't sure what was real and what had been a dream. All the events after dinner could have been a nightmare. He heard the sailors shouting to one another out on the deck, felt the slow rocking of the ship, and was dimly aware of all these details as he came to grips with the mind-boggling events that had brought him here. A strip of sunlight running down the center of the room grew wider, and as his eyes followed it to the door, he saw Rat poking his head through. When Rat saw him sitting up, he flung the door the rest of the way open and rushed to John's side. John, we didn't know if you would ever wake up. Rat was hugging him before he could brace himself. What's wrong? Rat asked when John grimaced in pain. I'm just real sore all over. John managed with a deep breath. He didn't realize how exhausted he was until he tried to speak. His mouth was dry, and it was hard to form words. And thirsty, he said. Rat stood there, staring dumbly for a moment. Then Phineas was there. John was immediately reminded of the air being thrust from his lungs while at the wheel. Phineas had known what would happen. He'd just let John almost be killed. After all the talk about keeping him safe, John pulled back from Phineas when he reached out to him. John, you need to lie back down. You're not well yet. The surge almost killed you. He turned to Rat. Get water. Get away from me. John meant it to be menacing, but what came out were the tired sputterings of a young boy trying to defy the one he blamed for his woes. Pa, he whispered. You left. Pa. Tears welled up in John's eyes, but he was so weak he didn't brush them aside. The room began to get blurry, and though he could still breathe, he felt the remnants of that strange surging sensation as he passed out again. When he came to the next time, he was not alone. His head still pounded and he knew better than to sit straight up again. Rat, Abram, Phineas, and Sarah were all at the table across the room, and when he stirred, Abram brought a flask to him. He held it to John's lips, and the other three stayed back. It was all John could do to hold back more tears, this time tears of joy. It was the most delicious thing he'd ever tasted. He couldn't remember ever being so thirsty and relieved and confused all at once. John, you've got to stay put a while till your strength comes back. Phineas says you're lucky, but now that the wind's been stirred in you. Abram trailed off as John stopped drinking and looked at him with a piercing, inquisitive glare. What the... he began. Wind's alive, John, hissed Rat. You've been out cold for two and a half days. That's not even counting the first night. He shook his head as John closed his mouth. Abram picked up Rat's thoughts. And you're not the only one. Phineas fell out a few hours after you did. He woke up after about fifteen hours, I'd say. And he hasn't said much to anyone since. Been waiting on you to come round, I think. 
I'll be honest with you, though. I didn't think you'd ever come back from wherever it was you went after that first day. You were squirming around, mumbling things that made no sense to any of us, going back and forth from cold sweats to burning hot ones. You screamed like someone was beating you a few times. And the worst of it was we couldn't wake you or get you to hold down any water. Every time we tried, you'd spew it back at us, flail about. You gave Rat that black eye there. The boys managed a shared chuckle despite the circumstance as John looked over Abram's shoulder. It wasn't much, but he certainly saw the black and blue circle around the edge of Rat's left eye. John gulped down another swallow of water. He had to go slow, even though he wanted to upend the tanker of the sweet nectar. It was work just to swallow, and he began to understand that his condition really had been dire. Rat edged his way past Abram and whispered, I've been sleeping over there, he motioned to his side, and John saw another small cot built into the wall. Last night, it must have been late, I feel a draft of cold air and wake up. Hadn't been sleeping much anyways. Well, the door cracked open, and just as I'm about to go shut it, Phineas creeps in, so I stay still. I've got one eye barely open so I can watch him. He looks at me for a minute to see if I'm still sleeping, I think, and then goes over to you. Rat was getting anxious and excited all at once, the same way he got riled up when he and John were exploring back on Labrie. John, he did something to you. I don't know what, but he knelt down next to you, just like I am now, and started saying stuff. At first I thought he was just talking to himself, trying to soothe you, but after a couple minutes, there was this sort of glow that started to grow between you two. It was like you two were sitting around a small fire. It was flickering just like the flames do in the cave up on Bowdoin, only the light was white. It felt really weird all of a sudden, like... Like I wasn't supposed to be seeing what I was seeing. Then it was like I couldn't breathe for a second. I felt the wind blow through the door. Only when I looked, the door was shut. Then the white fire went out. I could breathe again, and Phineas just stood up and left. John didn't know what to make of it. Rat, are you sure? You sure you weren't dreaming? I mean, I've had some seriously insane dreams while I've been under... He knew Rat was telling the truth, though, even as he asked. The wind, shortness of breath, the magic. It was all too similar to what he'd experienced. Rat just shook his head. Behind him, the others were getting up. Sarah was the first to join Rat by John's side. Immediately, she kneeled down and, surprising John, planted a kiss on his forehead. Luckily for John, his face was already red and clammy from the two days in bed. Abram looked down at John and took his hand. He told him he was glad to see him wake up before leaving the room to check on the crew. Lunch was just finishing, and he had to make sure that the repairs continued on schedule. John started to ask about the repairs when Phineas pulled up a stool and sat just behind Rat and Sarah. If you're ready, John. There's much we need to discuss. Phineas held out a steaming bowl of stew. He smelled potato, onion, tomato. John's mouth watered immediately, and he realized how hungry he was. I know you have many questions, and I'll do my best to answer them all. Just remember that I may not have all the answers you're looking for, 
part of the reason things went so bad in Labrie is that some things I thought I knew turned out to be false. As he spoke, John kept thinking that he looked both young and old at the same time. It was odd. The way he moved in battle marked Phineas as much younger than his eyes now confessed. As John looked at him, he saw sadness within the dark blue eyes. John sipped some of the stew as the ship rocked up and down on a large swell. His head was still throbbing and his whole body ached inside out. He knew his earlier anger with Phineas wasn't fair. Without him, who knew what would have happened to John back on Labrie? What's wrong with me? He clutched his chest, and straightening his back, he sat up and looked deep into Phineas's eyes. <laughs>